Welcome to Think Critical. I'm Joshua Miller. In today's episode, I interview economist Noah Smith about his ideas for how to fix America's economy and about the global trends that will be shaping our economy for years to come. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out our other interviews or our daily podcast, Critical Thoughts. Thank you for listening to Think Critical. Hello, Dr. Smith, uh, and welcome to the Think Critical podcast. Um, now, I'm, I assume most of my guests uh, or most of my listeners would know who you are, but for those who don't, um, uh, how would you describe yourself? Well, uh, I'm an opinion writer for Bloomberg Opinion. I mean, that's what I do. I've, um, I was briefly a professor. I did a PhD in economics a long time ago in the uh, early 2010s, and um, and yeah, I live in San Francisco. Uh, that's about it. Uh, so uh, today, what we uh, what, I, what we're going to discuss is uh, I know you're particularly interested in, um, and you talk a lot about broad macroeconomic trends, and um, the, the, and you take a particular interest, you know, a good interest in the future of the nation. So the question which I want to lead off with is, um, what what is the what is you think is the uh, the core like particular outstanding problems for the United States in terms of an economic dimension, which you say, you know, at this time are what we need to address. I mean, it's hard to say because it's hard to say where one problem ends and the other begins. So, um, I mean, you know, you can say, for example, wage stagnation or inequality, which is more important, wage stagnation or inequality. Well, it's, it's, are these two separate things? I mean, wage stagnation causes inequality. And uh, it, it is, you know, just if your wages stagnate, you'll be more unequal. And so, um, so it's hard to tell these problems apart. And how you conceptualize these problems ends up being as much sort of this tribal signaling as anything else. So you say, if you say inequality is the problem, you've declared yourself, um, you know, you've declared yourself to be more on the political left, I guess, maybe with the Bernie people, maybe with the the, the social Democrats or whoever they are. Um, and then if you say it's wage stagnation, well, then maybe actually you're with the, the sort of neoliberal people because maybe you're saying that a rising tide lifts all boats and we don't have to think about how much money the billionaires have somewhere. All we need to do is raise people's wages. But that you know, wage stagnation contributes to inequality and inequality might be the reason that people dislike wage stagnation and blah, blah, blah. So in other words, uh, this isn't a, just saying what these problems are. Conceptualizing these problems is not actually easy. Instead, the way I think about it is what kind of simple policies could we do that would have the biggest impact on improving the economic well-being of Americans? And I think that uh, I would there's a lot of things we could do. There's a lot of good things. And when you make these lists, someone will always get mad about the things you left out, the things that just didn't make your cut, right? However many things you want to put on your list. So people end up making these giant laundry lists and then whatever. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, I'm going to be brave and bold. I'm just going to say a few things. So the first thing we need is national health insurance. And we need national health insurance for a couple of reasons. One is to, to de-risk the process of, of health care. 
because people are just like healthcare risk is really holding back people's careers. It's um, it's creating job lock. It's stopping people from moving up. It feels unfair. It devastates people. It is unfair. And uh, so healthcare risk is this big deal. National insurance just solves it. Um, the second big problem with healthcare though is cost. So uh, this is not in terms of what it costs the user, but what in terms of, in terms of what it costs to actually produce the services to give you an MRI for your knee, you know, to get you a doctor's appointment with your primary care physician to get you the drugs you need, and uh, and those costs need to be crushed by central authority, um, and the central authority that can do that is a national health insurance program. Medicare is already really good at this, but we need to sort of crush them, crush the prices nationwide. And so a national health insurance system can also reduce cost and, and thus increase efficiency because we've got a lot of these monopsony and monopoly choke points. Um, and so, so we've got – or monopoly choke points specifically, I should say. Um, and so that's the first thing is just national health insurance. And I, I don't think Bernie's plan is the best. Uh, I think that the best plan is simply to take Medicare and give it to everybody, uh, which oddly is not at all what Bernie means when he says Medicare for all. He means a, a new, dramatically expanded plan that's kind of like Canada's system on steroids that he concocted and slapped the name Medicare for All onto it because Medicare was popular. That was a bit crappy of a thing to do um, because actual Medicare for everyone uh, would be a much better system. Uh, and similar to the systems that Japan and South Korea use, and they get great outcomes for low price. So we should just copy them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we need to, to raise labor income and raise wages. Uh, we can't have everybody depending on like the price appreciation of their house to actually get them through their economic lives. And so we need to, we need to raise wages. And I think the best way to do that is sectoral bargaining because unions used to be really good for wages, but there's a lot of problems with the way we do unions that meant that our previous model of unions probably was never going to survive, even if we'd had more sort of labor-friendly people in the government. And so, uh, because, in, in to be brief, we have this system where each shop has to unionize on its own. So the first shop to unionize is put at an incredible competitive disadvantage relative to all the others, and then that shop could either die or it, you know, whoever runs that shop could be forced, absolutely forced, even if they would be fine with a union, they can be forced to do union busting just because of the competitive aspect of, of the way we do unions shop by shop. And so sectoral bargaining has all of the establishments within an area, within an industry. So for example, all the fast food restaurants in Jacksonville, Florida bargain together for wages. In fact, usually they don't bargain together. What happens is like one, you know, bargainer will represent them all and, and they'll all take the same thing. And that completely takes away this competitive uh, problem from unionization, and it allows unions to boost wages and labor power without, um, you know, without sort of uh, screwing over companies. And that's what we really need. And so, and also, there's some evidence that this kind of thing will increase productivity because people feel just more invested in their companies, more of a voice, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that will, um, so that's good. And so, I think that uh, the third thing is housing. We have a real housing problem in America. Um, people just can't get a cheap, easy place to live. For that, there may be no simple federal solution, although I think there's lots the federal government can do, but it's not this kind of silver bar silver bullet thing where we just said, okay, sectoral bargaining, national health insurance, bam, go. Uh, housing is going to have to be a more sort of um, bottom-up 
multifaceted long-term effort to get cheap housing in this country because there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems at the local level, at the state level. Um, there's things the federal government can do to incentivize better local and state policy, but it can't do it all on its own just because of our federal system. But the three things – so in other words, I, I understand that people are going to want to put a lot of other things like, oh, child care. Well, yeah, child care is important. Child care is good. Um, you know, I don't know, wealth taxes, whatever, things like that. People are going to want to put their own uh, extra things on top of the, this. But I think that those three core things, if everyone could have, you know, uh, um, sort of a guarantee that you're, you'll be taken care of if something bad happens to your health, if you could have – Wages that make you feel invested in your job and makes you feel like the system respects you and give you enough to live a good life. And then if you could have a cheap place to live so you always have a roof over your head, that those are the three biggest things. And I'm willing to commit to those as the three biggest things that we need in America right now. So if you're asking what our problems are, I'm not sure, uh, but those are our solutions. Uh, so, so in terms of the first one, the national health insurance, um, like by just taking uh, Medicare and just lowering the age to zero, like so, is that is that is that akin to what the public option would be, or is like like in, like uh, Biden's current plan is a is a is a universal public option, right? So is that is that essentially uh, akin to more to that, or is it more close to something like Yang's or uh, Cory Booker's plan, which was just uh, which was Medicare for all, which you didn't brand private insurance, just uh, for, uh, for illustrative purposes. It's it's Cory Booker's plan. Um, Biden's plan public option would eventually end in the same thing because everyone would take the Medicare because they get so, so much lower prices, blah, blah, blah. So if you had to buy into one or another, you'd buy into the Medicare. Um, the only reason people go with private plans is because the government sort of subsidizes them via employers. People would love this and people would just flock to it and it would eventually become, um, you know, everyone just on Medicare. But, um, oh, of course, but, but banning private insurance is stupid. Um, there's lots of so 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 a government plan won't cover everything. It's not going to be this this Cadillac plan for everybody that covers absolutely everything to the max that Bernie wants. It's just stupid. It's not going to happen. Um, it would be bad for the country even if it did happen. And politically, it's not going to happen. Um, so instead, what uh, um, what we need the national health insurance to do? It's going to be like an okay health insurance, right? It's not going to be amazing. It's going to be okay, and then people who want better than that can buy supplemental insurance. So the insurance industry will live, and people will use it. And um, also, for the this system for for people who aren't poor or like you know very old, we have um, we may we have substantial cost sharing, or, or that's Medicare has has cost sharing, and the Japanese and South Korean systems have a slightly different version of cost sharing that works out to about the same. You know, people people who aren't you know poor or or very old pay. Um, like uh, about 30% of the cost of their health care on their own. And for that, they can get supplemental insurance. There's like Medigap, for example, people use. And, um, and uh, 
you get supplemental insurance and then you can pay out of pocket too. And so we should allow that and we should because, you know, cost sharing helps keeps costs down. And also, there's no way that, that Republicans will ever vote for anything like this or, or avoid sabotaging it unless it has some cost sharing. And so, so politically and economically, cost sharing makes sense. Also, you get buying from rich people because rich people can buy their own private insurance on top of the government health insurance. Like they can buy super gold-plated, awesome, you know, like you skin your skin your knee and will, you know, give you a hospital stay, whatever you want, like MRI every week, whatever you want for just insane amounts of money. They should be able to buy that, and uh, and they can't really under under Bernie's thing, but they should be able to buy that on top of it. Just like if you're rich. You have to pay taxes to support public school, but then if you want to pay a bunch of extra money, you can send your kid to a private school. We allow that. And we should do that with health care, too. It's not going to drain money from the national system because you're, everyone's still going to pay their taxes. We're not going to have school vouchers for health care. You're going to pay your taxes to support the national Medicare system, and you will get the national Medicare whether you want to use it or not. And so that's the system we really need. And uh, I, I think I'd also add that, like, if people have concerns about, like, well, the United States, you know, are, are because insurance companies, I don't know how much this, this claim is actually true, but some will claim that, you know, the private insurance industry helps breed innovation amongst medical technology, assuming if we keep, you know, some degree of that uh, with the supplemental uh, in, in cost sharing that still provides that benefit, which um, is essentially a good benefit. We do manufacture and design a lot of medications, which is one of the, the great sure. things about America. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, we are the most innovative in plastic surgery. No, we're not. Korea is the most innovative in plastic surgery, and it's bad. Uh, we are very innovative in plastic surgery. People pay for it on their own. Um, allowing rich people to spend extra money to pay for super, for the you know super experimental, newfangled treatments that like your regular insurance is not willing to cover yet. Fine, you know, or or elective surgeries and. All kinds of things. You can't cover everything for everybody, um, but you can have rich people pay through the nose to do these things. And that, if you're worried about rich people paying a lot to drive innovation, like we're going to invent this cool new innovative procedure so that we can get some money from rich people, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. Innovation will live. And the market will live. But you'll have this behemoth of a national health insurance program that makes sure that nobody uh, falls through the cracks. Nobody, uh, you know, is uh, impoverished by healthcare uh, surprises, and um, you know, and yeah, it'll it'll create a safer, fairer country, and it'll it'll create a much more efficient country because we won't be just dumping so much of our GDP down the hole of inefficient healthcare. But we'll crush those prices, and and crushing prices also means crushing things like overstaffing, inefficient procedures, blah blah, blah inefficiency. Uh, we'll we'll crush it. National health insurer will crush it. Yeah, and if the rich if the rich people want to to, to have you know better hospital food, they can have better hospital food, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So to your have your second point, catered. Why the hell not? So your second point about the wage stagnation um, and about sectoral bargaining. So uh, Paul Krugman in Conscience of a Liberal 
Um, he writes that, you know, uh, like about the, the great divergence between wages and profits. He's what a lot of economists see happen, you know, uh, post in the 1970s, um, which of course there's, you get like gold bugs who are like, this is because we went off the gold standard. And it's like, I don't think that's true. Um, yeah, they, like, because the gold standard was holding back productivity, I think, to a great degree. Um, that's probably, well, I, that's why I, th- I think, because like, if you look at the numbers, uh, productivity did increase a decent amount after we went off the gold standard in Bretton Woods. And, and, and I think it, whenever you think you get a productive increase, it tends to increase inequality. Um, because, well, if you live in a capitalist system, I think we don't, and I don't think in the United States, we don't have perfect returns to, to labor, right? So, um, but, so he he said that in in that book that one of the main reasons of the great divergence is the breakdown of labor relations norms is really cultural labor relations norms. So, um, do you think that uh, implementing sectoral bargaining will not only just increase like you know an actual policy effect, but also will it, will it, will it like culturally reinstitutionalize uh, labor unions, or you think that's going to take something else? No, that'll do it. Um. Yeah, people will people will absolutely love. So so there's two reasons why it does it actually. Number one, people know that they depend on unions for the for their labor power. Um, and if sectoral bargaining is written into the law, that'll stay true forever. Now the other reason is interesting, which is that so sectoral bargaining works by having um, instead of your union bargaining for you and my union bargaining for me, etc. One. Um, sort of agency, whether it's one specific union or a council or like a third-party representative or a wage board or whatever, does all the negotiation on their own. So that means that unions are, when competing for membership, have to offer extra stuff. And so what you see with European unions uh, in, in some countries, especially in North Europe, is that unions offer other benefits besides just bargaining on your behalf. Because the bargaining on your behalf is going to get done. And so you don't have to worry about that. So why be in the union? Why not just let the union do your job? Because remember, sectoral bargaining, the contract or the, the terms will cover everyone in the industry, whether or not you're in a union or not. So why join a union? Unions have to offer other stuff. And so unions offer all these other benefits like job training in exchange for their union dues that, that make unions valuable and important in their own right instead of just as sort of pass-through representatives or bargaining. And so that's, so that's the other way that sectoral bargaining will bring back union culture, but not quite the same as it was the first time. And, uh, and, and if we have your national uh, health insurance plan, and there's, uh, I think, well, you think, will unions like start to cover co-pays that provides an additional sense of, you know, that will help defray costs? Absolutely. Risk pools within unions. There's all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, you just look at look at other countries, and there's so many different possibilities of stuff unions can do for their members besides just bargain on their behalf. And I know the the German system, uh, their their unions, um, they like a, like they have a weird um, like their their health 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 in in, in Germany is actually based, like the healthcare comes from their old guild system. Like they used to have insurance pools amongst guild members. So in Germany, I know that unions do uh, pay into these like multiple pools. Of these it's, it, Germany has a very interesting health insurance system. That's like it's like it's a it's a multi parented extreme, um, even more so than I think the Dutch.
Now, uh, so for your first point about uh, about about reducing housing costs, so the the first two things you propose are definitely increases in government involvement. Uh, in um, so, do you think that on the other hand, um, you know, a lot of people would say that a lot, of, you know, a lot of economists would say that one of the main reasons why we have really high housing costs is things like uh, you know perhaps rent control or uh, zoning laws. So, do you think it's a so so first like what reductions do we exactly need, and then what increase increases if any, do we need in government involvement in the housing market? The, the answer is yes, decreasing government involvement will be a big part of the, the solution. The problem is that if you talk to anyone who's involved in construction contracting or housing development or whatever, they will universally tell you that there is a thicket of regulations. There's, a, there's an absolute forest of regulations that uh, cause time delays you know, various approval, like appeals and holdups and approval things and permitting and just a whole lot of annoying regulations like that that cause massive problems. The thing is that those regulations are in general going to be, there's going to be a lot of them, they're going to add up, and they're going to be different in different places. What that means is there's not necessarily like a single bullet I can say, oh, kill zoning. I mean, killing zoning is important, but what we've seen in places that do kill zoning or that that substantially relax zoning statewide is that there's a number of other uh, things that, that local governments can do, additional requirements they can do to sort of re-implement zoning de, de facto. So what you saw, what you'll see is they'll do like mandatory parking minimums, setback requirements. Those are just two examples of things you can do. You say, okay, fine. You don't have to have a single family home on every plot. We're, that law's gone, but you have to have a parking lot and you have to have a lawn and blah, blah, blah. And eventually it's just like, oh God, can we build anything except a single family home on this plot? Or um, historic laundromat. <laughs> I, I do like the historic laundromat in San Francisco. It's nice. But uh, I mean, it, it just like like I I get the historical preservation aspect of things, but I think it was a really like like looking the case it was like it was it's really massively silly. used. But and and so in addition to that, there's also other stuff like um, environmental reviews. So I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of environmental regulation, but you one of the big things holding up the cost of of highway construction in the United States is that um, essentially local landowners have almost unlimited power to challenge a planned highway route based on environmental stuff. And even if there's no problem, it, it creates this lengthy review that raises costs until people just give up the project or just go around you. And so um, better procedures to do those kind of reviews, of course, this affects housing too. Um, uh, various, there's all these covenants and HOAs that are like quasi-government things, but sort of supported by government, but then make their own bad decisions. There's a bunch of stuff. Um, in other words, there's just a bunch of stuff. We, we, we have had a national collective effort to make housing harder. And we've done that because a lot of white people wanted to keep black people out in the 20th century. And if we are going to change things, we're going to have to have an equally vigorous, multifaceted, bottom-up effort. We're going to have to have state governments, local governments, the federal government involved. We're going to have to have community organizations involved. We're going to have to have just a general ideology of pro-housingness. The YIMBY movement must diversify. It must uh, localize. It has to, but it also has to become this sort of long-term project that has an almost religious zeal because the zeal with which suburbanites 
canceled construction, made construction of multifamily housing hard to tr in order to try to keep out black people in the 20th century. The, the zeal, it was sustained, it was vigorous, it was successful. It was, at all levels of society, there was massive effort to do this. We're going to need something equally massive on the other side to undo it. Otherwise, our urban landscape will continue to suck and housing will continue to be too expensive. As to these uh, points, like what, you know, pending, like right now they just announced uh, Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary, which is, uh, I've made, made me very happy. I'm a huge Janet Yellen fan. Um, but so what, at least in the, in the near future, do you see as um, being accomplishable by the Biden administration and, you know, being, being the, the, his priorities in terms of like accomplishable things? What gives you like hope? What, you know, gives you uh it's a word for against what you know what what gives you a little bit of fear for the future and uh what gives you hope for the future in terms of the like what's immediately actionable in terms of like economic relief uh yeah economic relief and, and policies he's able to implement uh given like the current political situation of either a of either like a tightly controlled senate or a, a republican senate so usually the the pattern is that a president comes in the first at the very beginning with unified control of congress then they implement some big signature items like Obamacare or Trump's tax cut, you know, et cetera, or, um, or uh, yeah, stuff like that. Um, and then Bush's tax cut. Well, Bush didn't have unified control, but he de facto did. Um, and so then, and then there's this big backlash and everyone's like, oh no, we can't have too much change. And then in the midterms, the, uh, the, the opposition party is really energized and they turned out. Then they turn out and there's a big midterm wave like in 2018, like in 2010, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the typical pattern. But this time the pattern has been violated because Biden, unless Democrats manage to win both runoffs in Georgia, Biden won't have control of Congress. So we're going to start off with gridlock instead of starting off with unified government. And that's interesting because what it means is um, Biden might not take the blame when things are bad. So if... Uh, if people continue to suffer, if we continue to not do anything about the sort of overhang, the recessionary overhang from this pandemic in 2021 and 2022, uh, people might get mad at the Republicans. And we've seen this happen sometimes. People have tended to blame Republicans for government shutdowns and for debt ceiling fights. They have not come out well in those. And Republicans do not want to lose the midterms in 2022 and to give Biden unified control of government. That is something they're scared of. And because of Senate retirements, there actually is a good shot to do that. And so, and of course the House is always in play. And so, um, so in other words, Republicans might be willing to cut a deal because they can't rely on this sort of reliable midterm backlash because government control is starting out divided this time. Biden's not going to overreach because he can't overreach. So, yeah. So I think that there's a, a chance for for some uh, for some joint action. I mean, this is remember, this is the Republican Senate that, that passed the CARES Act, which was a more impressive economic relief package than other rich countries. 
and was the most impressive economic relief package we've passed since the 60s. Most easily the most impressive thing since the 60s, you know, since the since the Great Society. Like this was the CARES Act was huge, and the 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 Superdole, the uh, the expanded unemployment benefit was over way too soon. We should have extended it for more months, but it. Um, it really did a lot to carry us through the initial part of this pandemic. And so those, you know, so there might be hope there. And, and I think uh, an, an interesting part of the way that Republicans in the Senate, which I, and I think the Senate's typically more independent than the, than the House is of like national trends because just the way it's designed where you have long, more long-term members and the members tend to, you know, they, they come in, you know, they come in every two years, only a third will be entering or re, getting reelected. Um, I mean, I think that the, the Republican Party in the Senate is probably is probably will, be, will probably be more into like non-traditional democratic plans, but we don't need like traditional democratic plans. Like if if we were to talk to the Republicans about like implementing like further welfare, I don't think they would go for that. But as a more like a you know like a universal benefit, which is um and, and, or like a something like a like a NIT or UBI would might might be more. Um, or looking at, I guess, expanded EITC, I know, which Bennett and Romney were working on for a while, um, might be something the Republicans would go for more. Because, like, I think implementing choice in the public plans is probably something which, like, if, if the Republican Party was a party which actually held up to whatever ideals they, they said they held up for for whatever amount of time, then that would be something they would be you know, interested in. I don't know if that's true anymore, um, considering the way things have gone with that party. But Right. Right. So, so it's hard to say. Um, I'm not optimistic, but I'm not super pessimistic either. In terms of uh, like our recent trends. Um, at least before the pandemic and, and economic development, were things you think were getting worse or better before the pandemic hit? Was like even, um, and, and I know the pandemic will definitely have changed things, but um, do you think um, there was there there was a um, at least in terms of like a broader trends? Do you think that that there was any beginning of change before? And do you think the pandemic has necessarily changed those trends to be better or worse? Like what? Well, um, like, like inequality, like inequality or um. Like, like uh, I guess my question really is like, do you, do you think that the overall effect of this pandemic is going to be a greater increase in economic, like in the, in the long term, the changing of norms will be a greater increase in economic growth? Or do you think it's just a net negative all around in the long term, even in terms of like, a, like, I guess, like a reorientation of society? I don't know. I don't. It's hard to say. I don't think the Spanish flu had that much of an effect. Um, although, you know, I think it did. I think the Spanish flu made us develop better public health and better sort of uh, medical, virological, you know, stuff. I think we did more virus research. We did more vaccine research. We did more epidemiology. We did a lot of stuff motivated by the terrible experience of the Spanish flu. So I think we'll see that. We'll see a lot more focus on vaccinate, you know, developing new vaccines before diseases turn into pandemics. Um developing robust public health measures. You saw this in a lot of countries after SARS, uh, but we've just taken a big lesson. And um, so I think that will improve. I think 
overall sort of drawn attention to the uh, crisis of competence in our federal bureaucracies. I think that there needs to be deep reform at the CDC and FDA. I don't know if we'll get that reform, uh, but I think that people realize that these these bureaucracies aren't just these like omnipotent sort of all-powerful things. Of course, if you come from the libertarian side of the fence, you say, oh, bureaucracies suck, let's cut them. And it, uh, But that's that's not good because you need those bureaucracies to do something, even if they have a light touch, even if they... Even if the bureaucracies reduce their, you know, sort of regulations and requirements, you need smart people knowing which things can be reduced and which can't. There's no substitute for institutional competence. And stupid people will say, let's cut these agencies. But smart people will say, let's make sure these agencies have good people in them. Because otherwise, if you don't make sure the agencies have good people in them, you get a combination of incapacity from just not having enough funding and not having enough people if you just try to cut these agencies. And then they try to make more rules to because they have dumb people running them. And dumb people make dumb rules. And we've seen a lot of dumb rules out of the CDC and FDA recently. So if you don't want those dumb rules, don't cut these agencies somehow. Don't like cut their budgets. That's completely stupid. Make sure smart people work there and they will know what they will know, what sort of burdens can be reduced and what can be increased or what needs to stay. Yeah, like uh, I know that the FDA for it just it, like, um, they, it's declined to hold uh, like a vaccine approval committee um, for one of the vaccines until December 10th. And the, the vaccine, theoretically, they could have held it like uh, yeah, uh, three days ago, they could have held it, which is I don't know, just that's, that's not a good decision. Right. Um and then I looked into why they did it and because there's like a rule that they have to like notify the public of any committee they're going to hold like 13 days in advance. So they had to like set it this far in advance just because of this public notification requirement they had, which um, was ridiculous. Do you think that there's like a like an imminent like I don't know, I guess best word for it is like a like a bomb, like whether there's be like a debt bomb or like just some sort of, you know, like like there's a trend that's that's going to that, that we're not really looking at right now. But you know, for four years, uh, five years on the line. The answer is yes. The stuff you're not, the stuff you're not looking at will be more important than you realize. Um, however, what will it actually be? That's, that's pretty hard to say. Um, I mean, my bet is something China related because this, this sort of, uh, animosity between the U S and China is building and it seems to be bipartisan and it seems to be driven by deep fundamentals, not by the choices of a few leaders it's going to be very hard to stop this train. China and the United States are disengaging economically to some degree. There's a sort of a technology cold war where technology is balkanizing into two spheres of influence. We may see the same with supply chains. This is going to be big, and I don't think we know how it's going to be big yet or what it's going to do, but we can see this coming. Um, this, is, this is going to be important. Uh, debt bomb, I don't know what that means. Um, if it means are people going to like abandon the U.S. dollar because the federal government has a lot of debt? No, um, not anytime soon, uh, unless we elect real crazes, which we haven't done. I mean, we you know Trump is Trump is really crazy, but he's not uh, he's not into the macro crazy. Um, so no, that's not you know that's not going to happen. Uh, austerity people are just you know they're they're stupid. They're on their own little they're on their own path through the garden of ridiculous online ideology. Um, and so uh, the question is, 
what else could happen? Uh, Civil War, obviously. You've uh, you've seen the, the the number of people who actually have, have supported Trump's sort of uh, auto golpe attempt, his attempt to uh, you know sort of arrogate dictatorial powers to himself by overturning the result of the election with zero actual evidence of any fraud, just him just saying that an election that he doesn't win is by definition fraudulent. Um, that we've seen way too many Republicans standing by Trump during that. That bodes ill for the future. I think that continued unrest is, is likely, highly likely. Um, the country's not going to calm down just because we elected Joe Biden. It's going to take years before the country calms down. In that time, the the you know Republican Republican voter base is going to be more and more taken over by QAnon, by the sort of remnants of MAGA, by you know I don't know like white nationalists of various sorts, um, by but especially by conspiracy theory and paranoia and all kinds of crazy shit. It's going to be years before that goes away, and and I can only speculate as to what will eventually make it go away. So that's another risk. So if we're looking at these risks, we're looking at domestic division unrest. We're looking at conflict with China um, and the effect of separating our economy from that of China. And of course, looming over all this is climate change. I don't think that that's going to kill us in the next few years. But I mean, you know, California could quickly become unlivable due to wildfires. That will, if, if, if this year's wildfire season replicates itself in the next few years, but more so, we're in deep shit. And because then a whole coast that people moved to because it was so nice to live there will not be nice to live on anymore. That's a that's a massive continent changing thing. And so, you know, floods in Miami, whatever, um, or or a bunch of eastern seaboard cities, climate change could hit us faster than we think. We think, oh climate change, it'll hit us later on. It could hit us faster than we think. Uh, we didn't expect this, this amount of fire. Nobody did. If you did, you were you probably did for the wrong reasons. You were probably just a crank. Um, because it was it was an unexpected, nonlinear, chaotic sort of thing. You know, it's like um, it's the kind of thing you can't easily anticipate in how how bad it'll be before it happens. And there's going to be more shit like that from climate change because this big systemic change it's going to have ramifications that we don't predict. That's why stopping climate change is good. That's also why geoengineering is stupid because it only it only tries to counter the effects of climate change that we know of, that we can think of, where the big effects will be a lot of things we can't think of. Um, like wildfires. Suddenly, West Coast unlivable. Fuck. And so, so climate change could have bigger, more immediate effects than we expect. So these are some of these uh, these trends that might be the next big thing. But it could be something else. It could be that there's some... It could be that companies have borrowed too much and we're going to have a giant, massive wave of big corporate defaults because they borrowed a bunch of money just to pump up their stock prices. Um, hard to say. Technological disruptions. I think Twitter was a big technological disruption. We couldn't predict the amount of instability, social instability that would be caused by just letting all the angry people congregate in like one place and like rile each other up. As to your point about the conspiracy theories, um, uh, let, let the Republican Party go the way of the anti-Masonics, because <laughs> that um, you know that I think when, when you base your entire party on conspiracy theories, I don't I, I don't know how long you last, right? The anti-Masonics ran in like free elections, and then that's that's it. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, we have had explosions of conspiracy thinking in the past. And I don't think they're well chronicled in the histories that I've read. There probably are histories about this that are better than the ones I've read. But um, the ones I've read are pretty much quick glosses like the paranoid style in American politics or things about specific eras like, uh, you know, like when there were conspiracies about Catholic immigrants and stuff. And um, I mean, anti-Masonic would have to be another case. I haven't seen a big, good overall giant history overview of the history of conspiracy thinking in America, but that's a fascinating, huge subject. It's obviously real. Like it's um, the paranoid style in American politics is more powerful than maybe it's ever been. Uh, but it's it's out of control. In fact, I think that one one big reason uh, that it's out of that it's out of control is the decline of Christianity, because all these people have nothing to believe in. You know, that because they stopped going to church, they stopped believing in Jesus, what are they going to believe in? QAnon or some crap. And so these millenarian cults resulting from the decline of an old established religion worries me. And that's why I never had the antipathy toward Christianity that a lot of, you know, I knew a lot of atheists and sort of anti-religious people when I was young, when it seemed Christianity was really taking over and, you know, like with the Christian coalition and and... Uh, all this stuff and the the great awakening of Christianity, it seemed like it was just taking over and there were a lot of anti-religious people. I was like, well, you know what? I mean, yeah, sure. I see these, these, these folks overreaching, but you're going to, you're going to miss Christianity when it's gone. You're going to miss it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the, the 30 years war. If you know the way people were during that, it was such a tumultuous time. Then a lot of people abandoned the church that you, you had these really weird suicide cults popping up all over Germany. Like there, um, and I, I can't give you a full history of this, but, um, one of the previous guests we had, Dr. Frank Chalk, he did as like his little like pet project is documenting all these like little like, like micro millenarian cults. And like there's, like there's, there's cults who like got it to like, like actual like Satan worship and like just burning people and just like some small towns in the village. Germany in the 1600s um you know uh yeah but it, it, it was extreme amount of witch burning it was abnormal witch burning this is not just normal witch burning this is abnormal witch burning right no Germany went nuts with witch burning yeah, I I tend to I tend to um this like I'm an, I I'm I'm pretty agnostic. I tend to describe myself though as like a stoic because I always like to say to people that like like the like it's good to believe in in something else, just another have a higher ideal. I think that having like just nothing to and if you want to believe in like America or the good in humanity or something, I I like it just it doesn't it just believing in something rather than and believing in something you know more idealistic rather than like you know that there's a pedophile cult controlling the entire world is I think is a is a benefit to like the person your you know your personality like your personality and yourself. Obviously, these cults are not good for people. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider checking out any of our other content available on www.thinkcriticalpodcast.com. Or, if you really want to support us, please consider donating to our chip shower, available on our website under the tab Donate. We make daily content on the Critical Thoughts channel, and we usually have an episode out every two weeks. Thank you, as always, for listening to Think Critical.